If you would, please turn with me for a few minutes here to uh, Philippians chapter 4. If you grabbed a guest Bible in the back, we're on page 949. As we prepare ourselves for 2023, I want to read a passage here at the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians that I believe is relevant to uh, us as Christians as we uh, face a new year, and it has to do with the, the topic of uh, Christian contentment. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10 and ending in verse 20. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. I find these sort of autobiographical notes from Paul here at the end of Philippians particularly relevant to us as we face the prospect of a new year. We, we don't have any idea what 2023 holds, now do I? I had a conversation with uh, one of you this morning, you know who you are, and they said 2023 has to be better than 2022. And I thought originally, not necessarily. <laughs> There's no promise that it will be better. But then I, I re was reminded of some of the ways that 2022 was particularly difficult for this person. And I realized that better is definitely a relative term, not just from year to year, but from person to person. So uh, maybe for you, it has to be better. It can't be as bad or as worse as the past year. Um, but for some of you, you know that that there is no promise. In fact, we all know that there's no promise, that the year holds better things than what the past has held. It could, be, it could be a year of tremendous blessing and growth and prosperity for us as individuals or even for us as a church, but it could be one of, of great difficulty or challenge or perhaps even tragedy. It's encouraging to me at least to know that Paul, he had found a way to, to be content in every situation that he found himself in. And I believe that his example may prove helpful to you and to me as we look at a year ahead. So the question is, what were the contributing factors here in this passage to Paul's contentment in all things? The first is the support of a Christian community. Now, if you're a note taker, that's point number one, the support of a Christian community. It's amazing to me just how low a view of church that many American Christians actually have. And that's a topic that I have addressed. For those of you who are regulars here, you know that's a common theme here. The, the importance of church life, the importance, the, the critical urgency of, a, of belonging to an actual community, not just in the abstract. Yes, as a Christian, we belong to the, to the church universal, without a doubt. You belong to the church invisible. Every believer 
in the world and in heaven. We are united together mystically, mysteriously, by the power of the Spirit. Somehow we are incorporated into the body of Christ. Absolutely. But that, that is always to be expressed in a local church body. We don't just exist in the abstract as abstract persons. Persons are defined in relationship to other persons. And it is critically important that you and I belong to an actual community, a family, as it were, of other Christians. You and I need one another. Not to get into heaven, as Pastor Max used to say. I don't need you to get into heaven. But I need you because I'm not in heaven yet. We need one another while we're still in this world together. Probably more than we actually realize or are willing to admit. And Paul, the great apostle, he can make it through the challenges he faced knowing he has the support of a church. I love that. I love the idea of a church supporting Paul. They weren't always able to actually do something for him in a tangible way. He says, you, you tried there in verse 10. You weren't always able to do it. And yet, he knew that they were concerned for him. And that just having the concern for him was enough to bring joy to his heart and praise to his mouth. And of course, the moment the opportunity did arise, they did exactly what they intended or what they wanted to do. They actually met real needs in his life. And why did they do that? Well, Simply put, it was because of their relationship to him. It was because they had a connection with Paul at the level of the heart. They were, they were mutually concerned for the other and cared for the other in real ways. Verse 14, Paul says, they shared with him in his difficulties. So, Paul, are you saying that they were actually imprisoned with you in Rome? No. They weren't physically chained or un under house arrest. They weren't physically, literally, tangibly being persecuted in the same way that Paul was being persecuted. But because of their, of their connection to him, because of their relationship to him, they were bound by a different type of chain. They were bound by ties of love at the level of the heart. You know, it's the difference between the care and concern you might have for the person who is sick and struggling or perhaps even terminally ill in you know, room 100 of the hospital versus the care and concern you feel in room 102 for the person you know, the, the spouse, the, the child, the sibling, the friend, the church member. There's a, they could have the exact same situation, the exact same illness or malady or injury, and yet your concern and your care and your connection to them is radically different. Why? Not because of the circumstance, but because of your relationship to them. You and I share with one another and, and bear the burdens of those you, you are joined to at the level of the heart. And Paul could face his difficult circumstances because he was connected to a fellowship that cared for him and that was actually there for them to supply his real needs Beginning next Sunday, you already heard this morning, and maybe you saw in the bulletin or up on the monitor uh, as you came through, beginning next Sunday, we're going to launch our life group's emphasis for the beginning of 2023. And, and listen, I know we've talked about life groups before, and we're going to keep talking about life groups because we believe that small group life groups are at the heart and core of who we want to be as a church. It's great to come here on Sunday morning. By the way, kudos to you for being here this morning. <laughs> it's, it's tough two weeks in a row to have uh, major holidays fall on Sunday, isn't it? It just takes a little bit of extra effort, 
a little bit more sacrifice. I, I get it. I feel it too. I was up. I guarantee you there's not a single person in here who had less sleep than I did last night. I guarantee it. Because I went to bed with uh, just a whole uh, hodgepodge of emotions and adrenaline and disappointment and angst and whatever else. Uh, it, it, was, it was not a good night of rest for me. It was particularly challenging to get out of the bed this morning. I get it. So thank you for being here. God bless you for it. But listen, it's great to come here on Sunday. It's great to be here and join with the worshiping community. But listen, it is in the small group where real Christian relationships are formed. It's not in the big, listen, a lot of you have been in this space with the same people for weeks or months or even years, and you still don't know each other's names. That's not to be critical. It's just the nature of being in a space this large with a group this big. And you shouldn't feel ashamed if you forgot someone's name or got someone's name wrong. It's okay. We're all finite. <laughs> I even get them wrong from time to time. I had someone last week come to me and say, remember me? It's been about four or five years since I've seen him. I recognized his face instantly, and his name escaped me, and I was so embarrassed because we had the same name. How could I forget his name when it's my name? It happens to us. It's just a casualty of being a, a flawed, imperfect human being. But listen, if you want to have real Christian fellowship, the kind where you are connected to others at the level of the heart, where you are there to encourage and support and pray for and be there for one another, that happens in the small group. That is where we really connect. That is where we really grow. That is where we can optimally serve together, where the real needs that we have begin to truly be met. We actually view small groups here as the front line of congregational care. The front line of congregational care is not the pastor going to everybody who has a need. The front line of congregational care is you meeting each other's needs in the small group. And Paul says, when this happens, when Christians care for one another, are there for one another, are supplying the needs of one another, when they're bearing each other's burdens, that is what he calls in verse 18, a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Oh, I love that language. That, that's language from the Old Testament, isn't it? That's language pertaining to the burnt offering, which represented what? It represented consecration of the individual to God. It is the person devoting themselves to God. And as they made the offering, and as that scent rose to the heavens, God says, oh, that is, that is pleasing to, to my nose. You giving yourself wholly over to me delights my heart. And Paul says, in the same way, when Christians take note of the needs of one another and generously sacrifice to meet them, God delights in that deeply. And so Paul, well, he could, he could have Christian contentment first because he had the support of a Christian community. What was the second contributing factor to his contentment? It is, in the text here, I believe, the cultivation of a Christian attitude. A Christian attitude. You and I have a choice to make, don't we? In every situation that we face in life. We can choose to be, you know, the, the negative Nelly, the, the glass half empty to see things, you know, all the bad in a situation, and we can doubt and fear and complain, or we can see the positives. We can see, perhaps with faith, what we can't see with our eyes. We, we can be optimists. We can not just optimistic in the situation and definitely not optimistic in ourselves, but optimi op optim optimistic in God 
and we can trust. Those are the choices we have in everything we face. Now, God's people in the Old Testament didn't have a, the greatest track record in this department, did they? No, they, they, they are famously known for uh, very quickly turning from trust to grumbling. And it happens over and over and over again in the history of, of Israel's past. You go back to Exodus 17, perhaps the most famous of these moments where uh, God had blessed his people. He had provided grace. He had provided salvation. He was sustaining them. And yet the first moment they had any type of difficulty or challenge, what did the people do? It says in Exodus 17 that at Massa and Meribah, when there was no water to drink, the people complained against Moses and God. They grumbled. I can't believe God brought us here. As if the the slavery in Egypt was a superior option. And amazing how short-sighted people of faith can be, isn't it? Yesterday we're basking in, in the glory of God's salvation, and the next day we're complaining because things don't go our way. And Moses replies in verse 7 of that chapter: Why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord? I love the the very pastoral rebuke from Israel's leader. How dare you come to this place? This is a place of grace. You were here by grace. You've been saved by grace through faith. You trusted Yahweh. You took him at his word. You didn't earn your deliverance. You simply obeyed him and stepped into the salvation he supplied, trusting in the Lord. And you are in a place of grace. How dare you test the Lord and challenge and with your grumbling. It's sad how quickly people's attitudes change toward God and their leaders once their circumstances are no longer favorable. Perhaps you too and I don't have the greatest track record when it comes to our own attitude and our own response to certain situations in life. I I hope, if you're being honest with yourself, you're feeling a little bit of conviction this morning at this point, because I know I sure do. But Paul, in verse 11, describes a contentment that he has learned. I love that word. It's something that doesn't just happen to him. God doesn't zap him with contentment. It is something that he has learned. And, and learned here isn't just, you know, he opened a book one day and he read some new bit of information and now he's a little bit smarter than before because he learned something. That's not what he means by learning contentment. No, he's talking about how he has incorporated something into his life over time, kind of like a discipline. There's a discipline of of an attitude, a a Christian attitude of contentment, something that is formed over time through trials, through difficulties, through hardships. It doesn't just happen one day. It's something that is cultivated and incorporated into our lives. He uses the same verb there in verse 12 when he says, I have learned, listen to this, the secret of living in every situation. That idea of the secret is a word borrowed from uh, uh, the culture of the time, especially here in, in the church in Philippi, there are a bunch of converted Greek pagan people, and they would have understood mystery to refer to those mystery cults, the, the cult life that they were called out of as Christians, to be Christians. They forsook that, that old way of life, that old pattern of behavior, that, that sort of, that view that, you know, that there's this progression that the the cult members make as they work their way up from the lower degrees of the cult until they finally have taken full possession of the mystery. And Paul says, I have worked my way through the progressive 
you know, degrees of detachment from the things of the world in both comforts and discomforts alike. I have worked my way through. I have ascended to this place. And then through God's pruning work in my life, in my own discipleship, I have come to know the secret of the Christian life that circumstances cannot touch. It doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens through the crucible of discipleship in everyday life. You have a choice every day to view every situation as an opportunity for God to to prune away your attachments to the world. For God to strip strip from you, to to break the, the connection you have to your comforts, to your hopes and expectations, your worldly hopes and expectations, those things that you turn to for, for, for life or meaning. God is working in your circumstances to peel those things away and draw you solely to himself. And I think at the heart of this secret that Paul has found and has learned is the knowledge that God is at work even in the hard times. Oh, listen, you want to find the secret to contentment in life as a Christian, find that right there. That even when you're sick, even when you've had a terrible year and you've lost loved ones, even when you know, your 401k has nosedived because of the stock market or whatever the economic circumstances, even when someone has hurt you or betrayed you, when things aren't going your way, when things are at the hardest in life, even then you can have a peace in your heart. That comes from knowing that God is working even in that. He is. The scriptures tell us he is. That's the secret that Paul has come to find. Even when everyone has turned turned away from me, even when I'm, I'm bound, I'm heading towards certain death, and no one else, there's only one church that even cared for me. Everyone else has turned away from me. Even then, Paul says, I had no needs. Oh, imagine that. Imagine living a life of such detachment from the things of the world that you viewed even in your times of want that you have no need. God has he's done it. He supplied it all. Even when I have nothing, I have everything. Even when things are at their worst, I can trust that God is at his best. Do you know what Psalm 81.7 says concerning the Israelites in Exodus 17? Through his prophet, through the psalmist, God himself says this. This is God's commentary on what took place all those years before in the wilderness. Says in verse 7, this is the word of the Lord. He says, I tested your faith when there was no water at Meribah. Now when I read that, I stop and I'm like, wait a minute. Moses says that the people are testing God, and they were, sinfully, in a sinful way. You know, putting God to the test. You know, Jesus came and he was tested by Satan in, in the wilderness, and what was, what was Jesus' response? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I presume upon God in some sort of, God has to prove himself to me. That's, that's, not, what, that's not what the people of God are, of, who are called to be a people of faith are to be and do. And that's what they were doing to God. They were testing him. They were pushing him. They were complaining against him. And yet, we find here through the psalmist that in that time of hardship and challenge, it was God testing them. I find that really, really interesting. 
Which tells me that Massa and Meribah, just like your own wilderness situations in your life, they were not accidents along the journey, were they? No, those were purposeful acts of God to test the faith of his people and their devotion to him. God intended to use that hardship, just as he uses your hardships, to prove and to strengthen faith. That's what the Lord's testing is for. It's not to quiz you to make sure you get all the answers right. He's not trying to set you up for failure or to prove some point to put you in your place. No, God gives us these opportunities to see just how sincere, just how authentic, just how capable of perseverance our faith actually is. And maybe you don't like it. Well, no one likes that. (laughs) It's uncomfortable to be stretched. It's uncomfortable when the sincerity of our words here on Sunday morning are actually put to the test in real life. It hurts. It's hard. But there's something beautifully encouraging about seeing the fruit of faith in our own lives when we're faced with those situations. That's one of the ways that you and I can be confident that we have been born from above, that we have new life, that the Holy Spirit is in us when we see the fruit of faith in our own lives. There was a time in my life when if I had faced certain circumstances, I would have collapsed and crumbled. But oh, when I see myself persevere, not by my own strength, we'll get to that in a minute, but when I see myself persevere through this, I can know, oh, there's no way I could have done that on my own. There's no way that I can take responsibility for that. There's no way that old Sean would have ever persevered through that. It's only because God is at work in my life, my faith is sincere, and this has been an opportunity for me to see that, and I am encouraged. I am emboldened by it. And I just wonder, if instead of testing him in the wilderness, what would have happened if Israel had simply trusted him? Well, I can tell you what would have happened. A whole generation would never have perished there. They would have found life. And the same is true for you and for me. If we would only trust the Lord, you will find life. You will find blessing rest. I think Paul had come to learn over his time, over time, the perseverance of faith in seeing in every difficulty the testing grace of God. The God who Paul will later write in Romans 8.28, the God who causes everything to work together for good. Everything, friends. Don't miss the the everyness of everything. (laughs) In everything in your life, you can be confident that in it, God is working for your good and for his glory. That is the secret that Paul had come to learn. That is what he had incorporated into his life, what he had come to know through experience, what he had, it's the fruit of Christian discipleship. Learning to trust God, not just when things are good, but when things are good or bad. A God who is working to wean our hearts away from the things of the world to be holy and solely his. Which brings us to the final contributing factor to Paul's Christian contentment here in our passage. It's not just the support of a church or the cultivation of a Christian attitude. It is most importantly the thing that undergirds those things and gives them any meaning or purpose whatsoever. And it is this, the active presence of Christ. That's your third point if you're writing these down. The active presence of Christ. Why does Paul give God glory in verse 20? 
Why can he give God glory? Well, for a lot of reasons, but within context, he can give God glory in verse 20 because back in verse 13, he can say that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. When I was a kid, my dad used to say this to me. It wasn't all the time, but it was frequent enough that it was a recurring thing that dad would say. And I always appreciated it, but he would say something along the lines of, you can become anything that you want to become. Now, I, I, like I said, I was always encouraged by that. I always appreciated that. I know that from his heart, it was first and foremost a sentiment and expression of his own love for his son. I, I knew my dad loved me. There was never a doubt of that in my life. And I know that dad wanted, one of the ways dad wanted to express that to me was through that type of encouragement. I also know that dad did not have that same type of support and encouragement from his parents. In fact, I don't know if he had any support and encouragement from his parents. And so I think another motivating factor for him in making those types of statements to me was, you know, he didn't want to continue the sins of the past generation. And if there's anything that I appreciate most about my dad is, is how he broke from sort of the generational sin in his family's life. And because of his commitment to Christ, I've seen generations of faith that have come from him. It's beautiful. And it's true in any of your lives. If you are faithful to the Lord, you will see fruit in the generations that follow you. I was talking about Andy Stoll a moment ago. My goodness. Generation upon generation upon generation of faith because of the Lord's work in him and Mary's life and marriage. Beautiful testimony. But listen, as much as I appreciated that sentiment and, and, and was encouraged by it and heard where it was coming from, I always had this strong sort of skepticism. Because <laughs> I always knew that there are real limits to what I could actually become. I mean, if I'm just being, I'm being objective here, the most talented person in the world still can't do anything and everything. And similarly, there has to be a realism, a grounded, objective realism concerning what Paul is saying here. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I don't think Paul is saying that he can do any conceivable thing through Christ who gives him strength. But Paul, no matter how much he trusted God, no matter how deep and sincere and profound his faith was, no matter how filled with the Holy Spirit he was, Paul was never going to be able to fly from here to there like Superman. Paul was never going to be able to travel through time or, or go to the moon. I mean, fill in the blank. Just because you conceive of a, of a thing, however possible or plausible or not, just because you conceive it doesn't mean that you can do it through Christ who gives you strength. That's not what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying here is, I can overcome any possible barrier to living faithfully for God. Anything in this world that seeks to trip me up or hold me back or take me away from him, Christ gives me the power that I need for it not to succeed in my life. I can keep my eyes fixed on him. I don't have to give in to temptation. I don't have to be bound by sin. I don't have to be drawn away from God when times are hard. I can face anything in this life that the world, the flesh, or the devil might throw my way. Why? Because Christ himself gives me his strength. His power that Greek word dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from. It's like the dynamite power of God is in the life of the most ordinary, 
talentless Christian, you can do anything through him. Christ gives you everything you need to remain, to remain faithful and victorious in him. And guess what? Paul's not just saying it about himself, is he? He's saying it about you and for me. He says it in verse 19, this same God who takes care of me, he will supply all of your needs out of his own glorious riches, which have been given to us how? In Christ Jesus. That prepositional phrase means everything. Everything. Since we've been talking about the Israelites, well, how did they leave Egypt to begin with? What was the protection that the Israelites counted upon the night of Passover? Well, it was the blood of the lamb, wasn't it? A lamb that was sacrificed, blood was, was put on their door, and they rested and were safe and secure beneath the cover of the blood of the lamb. But you know what else? They not only sheltered beneath the blood, they fed upon the flesh. The very same lamb for each household whose blood was put on the, the door to protect the people was the very same lamb that they would cook and eat. So it wasn't just shelter and protection beneath, but it was something going on inside. The, the, the blood of the lamb, the power of the lamb. He's not just over them, he's in them. And the Passover, of course, points to whom? To Jesus. That's what, Jesus is what gives the Passover any meaning whatsoever. It all points to him. The one who shelters us under his blood, but the one who also fills us with himself through his spirit. When you and I feed upon his flesh, when we take him into ourselves, that's why we take communion. It's it's the sign and the seal of what he's doing in our lives. He's not just sheltering us. Thank you, God, for the shelter. Thank you for the blood that covers over me. I find my protection in him alone. But he doesn't just cover you. He fills you from the inside out. Everything that you need in this life. And that is the life of faith. Trusting his presence. Trusting his power. Trusting his provision. Trusting his very person. Christ doesn't just mediate the power and benefits and blessings of God. He is himself the sum of the blessings. He's not just some channel or conduit through which these things flow from God to you. No, Christ is the very place where these are all deposited. You want to you dwell within the, the sphere of God's blessing and protection in life? You have to dwell in his Son, that's why it's in Christ, not through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Absolutely. But God has opened up the storehouse of heaven's blessings and they're deposited to you, not through Christ, but in him. All of it is in his son. And if you are not in his son, then you don't stand a chance to make it through this life in any meaningful way. You only have your own destruction to look forward to. Christ doesn't just give you everything you need. He is everything that you need. And for Paul, the person who possesses Christ, oh, they're the person who possesses everything. Even if you have nothing else. Can you find contentment in that in 2023? If 
everything you have and are is stripped away and all that remains is Christ. Oh, friends, you are, you are as wealthy and you are wealthy in a way that Solomon could never have dreamed of. You have the riches of heaven, of eternity, the very life of God in you and for you. That's all, that's all anyone could ever ask for. Do you possess him this morning? Does he possess you this morning? No, we don't have any idea what the year holds, but you and I can make it through. We can find true contentment in all things. We can persevere regardless of the circumstances. How? Through life in the body, through Christian discipleship, the very formation of the mind and life of Christ in you, touching your attitudes and your motives and your expectations, everything you believe, think, and are. That, that's what discipleship is all about. It's you becoming like Jesus. But most importantly, through Christ in you, he is the hope of glory. His active, personal presence and power in your life today. Will you have faith in him in 2023, EMC? Will you have faith in him today? Well, if so, then let us take our first bold step into the new year as the body of Christ by recommitting ourselves to his lordship and to his care. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for this morning and this chance to recommit ourselves to you. And I pray that in these moments to come, we would be compelled by your spirit to say and do things that are true, that come from the heart, and that are enabled, not because we have strength or because we are so great, but because you are the powerful one. You are the faithful one. You are the one who has come to dwell in our midst, and we are in you and you are in us. And it's only because of you that any of these words have any possibility whatsoever. And so, Lord, come and fill these moments with your sweet presence and um, be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.